Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the Jogcast is proud to present the 2011 pantomime, Genderella. In a long-forgotten university department, Genderella and her Jodfather, Baron Cardiff, worked onto their research into gamma-ray bursts and mapping the galaxy. They were happy together, but their time came for Baron Cardiff to marry again, and his new wife brought in her two ugly daughters to the department. The result was a disaster for Genderella, because they bullied her and made her life a misery. But I've already cleaned all of that data three times. If I do it any more, I'll never be able to book telescope time on Hubble before it's decommissioned. Shut up, Genderella. Get on with your chores. You'll never be a postdoc with that attitude. Yes, you will have to be happy with thankless tasks if you want to go further in academia. Really? I thought that getting my PhD would be a lifelong ticket to excitement, adventure and really wild things. Fire up your ancient computer, Genderella. There are artifacts in your data. Oh, no, there aren't. Oh, yes, there are. We should know. We might have put them there. Come along, my two lovely daughters. We have a party to go to. A party? Yes. Prince Professional Respect has come back from his grand tour and is wanting to invite all Jodcast listeners to a gigantic party. But uh, you have to make sure you finish your work first, Cinderella. Besides, you're not his type. Prince Professional Respect? I thought he'd gone for good. It's a bit difficult to get rid of him, I'm afraid, Genderella. Come along. Time to get going. Bye, Genderella. Enjoy your evening with your data. Oh, I want to go to the party as well. And I'm so fed up with all this work. If only someone could help me. Hello, Genderella. Ooh, a fairy. Yes, Genderella, I am your fairy job mother. I have heard your cries, magically cleaned all of your data, already created lots of pretty radio pictures from it, and now I will help you get to the party. I thank you. What do I have to do? Bring those pens here. I'll transform them into... A carriage? Don't be silly. It's a young person's rail card. You must also look the part. Here's a dress from Denibles. And finally, these glasses to mask your identity. Glasses? How will they make me look different? It worked for Superman. Well, thank you so much. Off to the party I go. Wait, you must be back before the Jodcast starts. Be warned. And so, Genderella caught the train to the party and wowed everyone with her grace, elegance and wit. Gosh, look at that academic. Oh, lorks, she's so graceful, elegant and witty. But her stepmother and stepsisters were not impressed. Oh, dare that girl come in here and take all the attention from us? She looks familiar. She could be Genderella, but those glasses make her look completely different. It is such a shame that Genderella couldn't be here. I would love for her to meet Prince Professional Respect. The Prince entered and immediately saw Genderella. I say, what's your name? You seem so witty, elegant and graceful. Unfortunately, Genderella remembered the fairy's words and the show was about to start. I'm so sorry, Your Highness, but I have to go. No, no, wait. Please, tell me who you are. There's no time. Genderella ran from the party, her railcard disappearing from her pocket and her dress changing back. The glasses fell from her face to be picked up by the prince. Wait, you never told me your name. How do I get in contact with you? Are you on Twitter? How do I find you again? Who are you? What an eccentric performance. (laughs) 
Jotcast, where black holes is not what you get in black socks. With Megan Argo, John Field, Melanie Jean, Jen Gupta, Liz Guzman, Strat Harper, Mel Irfan, Jan Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jotcast, December 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jotcast. Uh, I'm Melanie and joining me today we have Jen, Liz and Mel. Hello. Hi. Hey Mel, so you're new here. Well, you've done a couple of interviews, but it's the first time you present. Can you tell us more about yourself? Okay, well I've just finished the first year of my PhD at uh, Jodrell Bank and I do CMB Cosmology. So I'm working on a project called CBAS, which is a C-band all-sky survey. And make, C-band is 5 gigahertz. Do you make pretty plots? Um, I've just moved on from the straight line graph into actual images of the galaxy. <laughs> so yes, yeah, now I all, do. That's all I care about in astronomy is the pretty plots. <laughs> so CBAS is a telescope? Yeah, it's due to be two. So we need to map the whole sky, which means we need a telescope in the Northern Hemisphere, which we have at Caltech, and we need one in the Southern Hemisphere, which we're building and is almost finished and going to be put out in South Africa. Awesome. So we had a special intro. Yeah, so I should probably explain that for any new listeners who started listening to the Jobcast in 2011. You may not know, but we used to have silly spoof intro outros on every main show that were done by Dave Alt. But Dave stopped doing Jobcast because he got a real job, so the intro outro stopped. And we thought we had to keep the pantos. We've done a pantomime every year for the last few years, so that's why there's a silly intro. And Melanie has no idea what a pantomime is, so that was really funny getting her to record that. I still have no idea what it is, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> anyway, um, in the show this time, we have more interviews about black holes, and we find out what we can see in the December night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, formation mechanisms of neutron stars, chaos terrain on Europa, and the invasion of Mars. There are thought to be two main formation mechanisms for the ultra-dense compact stars known as neutron stars, called collapsed supernovae, where massive stars greater than eight times the mass of the Sun run out of fuel and form a massive iron core, and electron capture supernovae, where a lower mass core, mainly composed of oxygen, neon and magnesium, loses outward pressure supporting it against further collapse, due to the sudden capture of electrons by neon or magnesium nuclei. While the explosions caused by these two mechanisms have different characteristics, it has so far been impossible to distinguish between neutron stars formed by these two processes. Now, in a paper published in Nature on November the 17th, Christian Kniger and colleagues have found evidence of two distinct subpopulations of a particular type of binary pulsar. The researchers studied a class of binary system known as BEX binaries, a neutron star orbiting a BE-type star. These BE stars are hot, massive B-type stars on the main sequence, with significant hydrogen emission in their spectra. They rotate very rapidly and are losing material in a surrounding disk of gas. In a binary system with a BE star orbiting a neutron star, this disk material is accreted by the neutron star, resulting in strong X-ray emission. Such systems usually have elliptical orbits, with periods between 10 and 1,000 days, and the neutron stars spin rapidly, with periods of between 1 and 1,000 seconds. These systems are useful in exploring the formation mechanisms of neutron stars, because they provide a well-defined sample where the physical conditions are similar, and many of the properties are easily measured. The researchers took a sample of BEX systems from the Milky Way and Magellanic Clouds and studied their properties. What they discovered is that both the spin period of the neutron star and the orbital period of the binary system fall into two groups. 
The split between long and short period systems is significant in the full sample, and it's still significant when the sample is divided by galaxy, showing that the bimodal nature of the distribution is unlikely to be due to a selection effect. The researchers discussed three possibilities for the split in the population. One reason could be that some neutron star spin periods are more stable than others, but this idea looks unlikely since there is a correlation between the spin period and the orbital period. Another possibility is that the orbital period of the binary system may vary over time. In this case, the two subpopulations would represent two distinct, long-lived, stable phases. However, the timescales over which changes would occur in such systems are much longer than the lifetimes of the BE stars involved. The third possibility is that the two classes of BEX system are caused by the two different classes of supernova. While core collapse supernova occur in any star greater than a specific mass, the conditions for an electron capture supernova are far more difficult to achieve, and these conditions are more easily produced in binary systems. There are significant differences in the products of the two different kinds of supernova. Electron capture supernova result in lower mass neutron stars, moving at slower velocities than those produced in core collapse supernova. Since the kick velocity will have a significant effect on the eccentricity of the binary orbit, the two different supernova mechanisms could naturally produce two subpopulations of BEX binaries with different orbital parameters. The researchers conclude that core collapse supernova should produce high-mass neutron stars in eccentric orbits, while electron capture supernovae would result in lower-mass neutron stars in more circular orbits. While only a small number of systems currently have well-measured eccentricities, the results so far appear to support this conclusion. Even so, the authors point out that their suggested explanation for the two observed populations is speculative, and there are many further observational and theoretical tests which can be carried out in order to test the hypothesis. Very few places in the solar system are geologically active today. The Earth is one, with the tectonic plates continuously shifting, and Jupiter's moon Io is another, the tidal stresses of its parent planet causing large amounts of volcanic activity. Another of Jupiter's moons also shows signs of significant surface movement, with its surface covered by ice instead of rock, Europa is certainly an unusual place. The icy shell covers a liquid ocean, but the thickness of this ice crust is debated. The Galileo spacecraft showed that Europa's surface includes features known as chaos terrains, quasi-circular regions where the surface is cracked and broken in random patterns, features which are unique to Europa. Some of these chaos terrains, such as the archetypal Connemara chaos, rise above the surrounding surface, and no models so far have been able to entirely explain these features. With a thick ice shell potentially some 10 kilometres deep, the buoyancy of material rising in plumes below the surface is not strong enough to create the observed features. But now, a group of researchers have found a mechanism which can explain these terrains, and which suggests that, at least in some places, the crust is comparatively thin. In a paper published in Nature on November the 24th, a team led by Brittany Schmidt at the University of Texas at Austin describe a model which explains the observed nature of these chaos terrains. While such features have not been found on the Earth, the researchers looked at analogous processes known to occur in terrestrial subglacial volcanoes and ice shelves, and applied these ideas to images of Europa's chaos terrains taken by the Galileo spacecraft a decade ago. Their analysis suggests that these chaos terrains likely form above liquid water lenses, lens-shaped regions of liquid water which are confined under the surface by stresses in the surrounding ice. Similar features are seen in subglacial eruptions in Iceland, although, since the surface ice is finite in this case, the water eventually escapes. The model proposed for Europa is that a rising plume of pure ice starts to melt the salty ice layer above it. As it melts, the volume decreases and the surface collapses, forming a depression and causing fractures, 
creating rectangular blocks of ice. The fractures then fill with salty water, which eventually refreezes, expanding as it does and raising the resulting chaotic terrain above the surrounding surface. This model explains the raised nature of Connemara chaos, and suggests that the depression seen in another region, known as Theramacula, a chaos region some 100 kilometres in diameter, is still actively forming over a liquid layer just a few kilometres below the surface. If this is the case, then the next mission to take photographs of Europa should see significant changes in the appearance of Theramacula. The thickness of the surface ice on Europa is of key importance for future missions to the Moon to search for life in the subsurface ocean, since any such mission will need to drill through this layer. This research suggests that, at least in places, the ice may be relatively thin. And finally, November saw the launch of two separate missions to Mars. The first, Phobos Grunt, was launched from Baikonur in Kazakhstan at 16 minutes past midnight Moscow time on November the 9th. The Russian spacecraft, designed to collect samples from Mars's moon Phobos, has been 20 years in the making and was also carrying China's first Mars satellite, Yingo-1. Phobos Grunt itself was an ambitious mission designed to return samples of the surface of the 27km diameter satellite and return them to the Earth, giving planetary scientists around the world a unique means of investigating its origin. Early telemetry received from the Russian craft showed a flawless launch and entry into the correct parking orbit. However, two orbits later, when the craft was supposed to have fired its main engine to place it on a trajectory towards Mars, tracking stations failed to find the probe in the expected transfer orbit. When the craft was located several hours later, it was still in its initial parking orbit, indicating a failure of the planned engine burn. While official sources of information on the status of the craft were as quiet as the spacecraft itself, contact with Phobos Grunt was eventually made by a 15-metre European Space Agency tracking station located 20 kilometres north of Perth in Western Australia. At 2025 GMT on November the 22nd, a small secondary antenna bolted to the side of the 15-metre dish was used to send a weak radio signal towards the craft, commanding it to switch on its transmitter. Over the following week, several further communication sessions took place, and the received telemetry was passed to the Russian Space Agency for analysis. While efforts continued to communicate with the craft and diagnose the nature of the fault, the window for sending the spacecraft on its way to Phobos closed on November the 21st. If ground controllers are able to gain full control of the craft, it may be possible to retask it to another target, or at least to boost it to a higher orbit to avoid it re-entering the atmosphere. With 7.5 tonnes of propellant on board, if it does burn up in the atmosphere, very little debris is expected to reach the ground. The second Mars-bound craft was the Mars Science Laboratory, a NASA mission designed to explore Gale Crater near the equator of the Red Planet. Launched on November the 26th at 10am Eastern Standard Time, the spacecraft carries on board the Curiosity rover, the latest of a series of ground-based missions of the planet and the largest to date. At 3 metres in length, Curiosity is twice as long and five times as heavy as the twin Mars exploration rovers Spirit and Opportunity, launched in 2003. While it inherits many design features from previous missions, Curiosity contains many new experiments, including equipment for onboard analysis of rock samples, including a gas chromatograph, a mass spectrometer, and a tunable laser spectrometer which will be able to identify a wide range of organic compounds and determine the ratios of different isotopes of key elements. These isotope ratios are clues to understanding the history of Mars's atmosphere and water. On arrival at Mars in August 2012, the rover will begin its journey at the bottom of Gale Crater, one of the deepest depressions on Mars and a geologically fascinating place. As it goes, it will cross many layers of rock, including what may be an alluvial fan, a spread of sediment left by fluid flowing down the crater wall, 
Over the course of the mission, the rover will investigate old rock on the crater floor before moving upwards towards the crater's central peak, tracing the history of the planet's surface across more than a billion years as it goes. The mission is initially funded for two years of operation on the Martian surface, although with its onboard nuclear-powered battery, it could function for much longer. Thanks for that, Megan. This show's interviews are from a meeting about black holes that it was held here in Manchester and we had one day in Jodelbank Observatory. And the first interview is Stuart talking to Dr. Sonia Anton about how a future mission to map our Milky Way can also help us to understand distant quasars. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Sonia Anton of Porto University. I'm just going to ask her a bit about her talk she did on Wednesday at the COST conference, which was on astrophysics of quasars and the Gaia satellite. So I thought probably best to start off with sort of a description of what a quasar is and a blazar as well, which are slightly different. I prefer to talk about blazars. Okay. What they are, they are, they are galaxies that, ha- that have in their center very, very large black hole in terms of mass. So it's a super massive black hole. And having or not having such a, a thing in the center of a galaxy makes a lot of difference. When you look to a normal galaxy, you essentially what you, you detect is the light of the stars, a little bit of also from dust, but it's starlight. When you move to this kind of objects, you have the starlight, but then you have another kind of light that cannot explain with a normal black body spectrum, if you want. This is for the blazer, so there is a component that we talk about non-thermal emission because does not is not explained by the thermal emission. This light is different also because it's polarized, and the light from the stars is not polarized. So that's what a quasar is, or a blazar is. What you were saying in your talk that you wanted to use the Gaia satellite study blazars. So what is the Gaia satellite, and sort of why is why would it be useful to use to study blazars? Okay, so so Gaia is going to be the next ESA mission, so it's going to be launched next year, and uh, it's a mission thought to study very well our galaxy, the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. The Milky Way is not a blazar. We think that there is a black hole in the center of our galaxy, but is a, a small version of what a blazer is. So it does not have the characteristics of a blazer. Now, what Guy is going to do is to look to stars. So, so it's not the aim of Guy is not extragalactic stuff. It's really our galaxy. So mm-hmm. to measure very accurate positions of the stars and also the, the, the velocities. So to have a, a kind of a three-dimensional map of our galaxy. Now, the novelty of Gaia is that going to, is going to have a very good astrometry to, in the optical. is the first time that a mission has going to be such a good astrometry. So you, astrometry, you, you really know the position of your object, and you know it with a very high accuracy. Accuracy of, of micro arc second. So putting that into units that we can understand, that's like being able to measure the diameter of a human hair at a thousand kilometers. When the mission is in the, in the space, it, the, the, the satellite has to know where it's looking to. So the way of doing this is to feed this, the, the, the satellite with coordinates of some of the objects that are known first. So if I tell the, the, the satellite 
well, if you see this object, then the coordinates are blah, blah, blah. The satellite can build a self-consistent solution to know when it moves, what are the coordinates. And this seed catalog has to be of objects that have very good coordinates. And the objects that have the best coordinates are quasars or blazers because we can see them with the radio. And in the radio, you have interferometry, you have things like Merlin and VLBI mm -hmm. that give you very accurate coordinates of the order of micro arc second, that's the order of accuracy of Gaia. Quasars are the objects, or blazers, if you want, are the objects that are really good for, for this. So that's the interest of Gaia in quasars. Because, because quasars are kind of point sources, you really don't know when you, you are looking, you're, you really don't know if it's a star or if it's a, a quasar or what it is. And, and Gaia also, it's an old-sky old scanning thing, so it's passing and it's observing everything that's in front so it's not going to distinguish if it's a star or, or a quasar. So it's going to, 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 to observe a lot of, of objects. And the, the models say that probably is going to see something like 500,000 quasars or AGNs. Better, better to say that's AGNs. And a lot of them are going to be new sources. So objects that were never before were not observed. Okay, so the main point of Gaia then is sort of, in terms of quasars, is just to get accurate positions so they can map the rest of the galaxy. I kind of, so yes, for, so for the first bit, for the first part, you need quasars to have a, a kind of candles that point you the, the position in the, in the sky, mm -hmm. kind of. And in the second part, you'll have a huge amount of data that comes for free, even if it was not thought to observe quasars, but they are going to be observed any, anyway. So then you can take advantage of that. But quasars or AGN, it's not the main purpose of Gaia. The main purpose of Gaia is the Milky Way, is our galaxy. That's really the main purpose. Quasars or general relativity or extrasolar planets or things like that are kind of sub-products. They are very interesting, but it's not the main goal of the mission. Okay, so basically you're sort of getting all this extra data and that's, that's why you were presenting yesterday, oh, on Wednesday yeah. saying, yes. look what we can do exactly. with Gaia as like a byproduct. Yeah. Okay, so what is it you plan to do? I mean, your talk, you were talking about uh, measuring the jitters of the centroid. Would that be the, the quasar itself, the black hole at the centre? Could you talk through sort of what sure. you were saying there? Sure. So, so one of the things that is very important is for the first part of, of the mission that you really want to, to give to the mission very good coordinates, you have to rely in those coordinates, right? And I, as I said, we know very well the coordinates or if you want the centroid of the object in the radio, but we never observe in the optical with this kind of accuracy and when we are talking about accuracies of micro-arc second scale, we don't know what we are going to find in the optical band. We have an idea is that at micro-arc second scale in the NGN, there is a lot of things happening because a lot of things happen in the first, in the central, one parsec or so. You have the black hole itself, you have the Christian disk, you have the broadline region. Everything is there at more or less one parsec. And you are probing with, with Gaia, you are probing this kind of 
scale of the quasar. You want these coordinates to be very accurate in the optical. So our point is, we know that these objects vary in magnitude and flux. That's one of the characteristics of quasars. Actually, it's one of the characteristics that sometimes you can separate them from stars, because in the optical, with the arc second resolution, they are all point sources. But stars are very few vary. Quasars vary a lot. So our, our point was to say, look, these objects vary in flux. Is this going to be a problem? Is this going to influence, in some sense, coordinates? the centroid of the object. So this, is, this was the question that we posed ourselves. To, to try to answer this question, we got a sample of objects that we knew that were right a lot in the optical, and these objects were observed at uh, La Silla, uh, TISO telescopes in La Silla, for almost three years. So each two or three months, the objects were observed. Mm-hmm. And by a clever way of doing things, it was not me, so I can say it, you could get movements of the centroid in the scale of milliard seconds, so we are three orders of magnitude larger. And what sort of scale would that be again? So Gaia is micro arc second, mm-hmm. and we detect jitters of the centroid of milliard seconds, so which, is, which was quite good because you have kind of res- resolution of a little bit less than one arc second in, in this observation. So you have to do it in a clever way to, to get this kind of jitter. Anyway. So just to make that clear, the planets, they tend to be about a few tens of arc seconds across. But you're talking about milli arc sec- second resolution. So that's a thousand times smaller. But with Gaia... That's even smaller again at micro arc seconds. So that's a thousand times smaller again. The point here is that we saw that as the object varied in flux, it also varied the centroid. This is important to Gaia because we have to come with a model that can ease the uncertainties in this centroid thing when it varied. In, in the perfect world, I would get some kind of solution that if my object varies by some amount, I can tell you how much in the position is going to change. All right? Mm-hmm. So we are working on this. This is one bit of the story. The other bit of the story is to understand why it is happening, right? So why it's moving at all. Exactly. Why do, why do I see this, this, this jitter? Why? What's, what's the physics? Behind, behind it what, what, what is the explanation for this do we understand why, why the brightness changes or is it just the variation in the position that we don't understand we have some models to understand why the, 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 there is a flux variation the explanation can be a two-folded explanation can be instabilities of a cushion disk that eliminate more or less stuff that is moving around and also can be perturbations along the jet. Some of these objects are jetted, so have radio jets, strong things. And there are some flares or some kind of enhancement along the jet that produces more, more output. And so mm-hmm. you, you see these fluctuations in, in brightness. Is that a short time scales that can happen on? Or is that sort of, as you see it, that's how it is for 
few million years or some no, no, such? No, 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 no. You have what is called the micro variability and long term variability. So you, you, you can have objects, the most extreme objects, that can vary in some hours, and you have the objects that can vary along the year or the objects get, that can vary along the years. So, so, so you have all sorts of variability. So what we think that we can, not all the objects, we can understand what's the origin of the centroid uh, displacement. For some, we think that is related with the jet because these are, some of them are jetted uh, objects, are, as I was saying. The direction of so so the jitter of the centroid is not random, it's not random, but has a direction. And if you compare the direction of the radio jet with this direction, they are well correlated. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that the variation in flux of the radio and of the optical, in some cases, are also correlated. So you have two pieces of evidence. In one hand, you have the the, piece, the, 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 the hints that the, flit, the, the variation in flux in the optical in the radio is connected. And when you see in terms of morphology, if you want a kind of morphology, mm-hmm. you see that what is happening in the optical, even if you cannot resolve it because you don't have, you only see the centroid, is also connected with the, the, the radial morphology. Right. Okay. I think that was pretty much all what you talked about in your talk, wasn't it? So thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks for that, Stuart. Our second interview this month will be a familiar voice to many Judcast listeners. Liz and Mark talked to Dr. Evan Keane about his work. So we're here in the Judcast studio with Evan Keane. I don't know if you remember him, but he was a Jodl Bank uh, PhD student. He left a few months ago to go to Max Planck in Bonn to do his postdoc. And we were here in a conference called The Black Holes in a Violent Universe. And he gave a talk, a very interesting and controversial talk a little bit. So, Evan, could you tell us a little bit about your talk? And mainly, the title of the talk was Sparkers. So, what is a Sparker? What is a Sparker? Well, first of all, was it really controversial? I think it was. Oh, I guess that's good. <laughs> um, okay, well, I spoke about something called Sparkers. This is just a name that we've given to a couple of events that we've detected that we don't really know what they are. They're really bright radio bursts that happen once. We've tried to see them again. Um, we're confused as to what they are. They're really interesting because they're really bright. The obvious solution to these kind of bursts is that maybe it's a pulsar that goes bang. But pulsars don't just go bang once. And if you if you try to see them again, you you usually succeed with pulsars. But these seem to be single events that just happen once. And the possible explanations for that are a little bit exotic. So are they definitely real? They're definitely real, yes. And I should say, they're, in my opinion, definitely astronomical. Okay. These are found in um, pulsar surveys. So pulsar astronomers are always doing surveys all the time, looking for new pulsars. We have about 2,000 that we know about now. But we're always searching for more. We always want to find the best one. Uh, we also find these bursts in these same surveys um, that aren't necessarily pulsars. They can be from anything, because these are just radio surveys. 
in this search for pulsars and other astronomical objects, we have the problem of interference. So anything like mobile phones and Wi-Fi signals and radar towers and TV communications, this kind of stuff can ruin your observations. And I'm very well aware of that. I spent some of my PhD trying to remove effects from Manchester Airport in Jodrell Bank observations. <laughs> um, but these guys don't look like that. They're definitely astronomical in origin. What well, tells you that they're astronomical? Well, a few things. Uh, the telescope we used um, to find these is the Parkes Telescope in Australia. And we used um, a receiver on that, which is like a, ca it's like a camera, but it's a radio one. And we had several um, pixels on the sky. Actually, we had 13, so not very good camera, I guess. <laughs> but this is what we have on our radio telescopes. And these pixels are spread over a large area of the sky, a few degrees, actually. So anything astronomical would appear in one pixel, and one pixel only. Maybe if it was very, very bright, it would appear in the pixel beside it as well. And actually that happens with the the very brightest pulsar, the Vela pulsar. But astronomical signals will appear in one, whereas some signal from Earth, like a radar signal or anything terrestrial, it will appear in all of them because it's not coming it's not coming straight down the line of the telescope, it's coming in from the side and it's really bright. So that's one thing that tells us that it's astronomical. Another thing is that the radio signal, when it arrives at us, it has some characteristics that tell us that it's astronomical in origin. For instance, the high frequencies arrive before the low frequencies. And this is because the signal has to crash through a lot of stuff on its way to the Earth. And the properties of the medium are such that the high frequencies arrive first. But anything that comes from Earth, the high frequencies and the low frequencies come at the same time because it hasn't come very far. Okay, so let's see that this is real, that it was uh, um, something astronomical. So what do you think it was then? What What's the explanation? Now that's the question. <laughs> is that the controversial bit? Yeah. Oh, the question's not controversial. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the problem I had. So in, in my PhD, I've, I found some sources. They're mostly pulsars. There were a few, I don't know what they are. One in particular, I really don't know what it is, and it seems quite interesting to me. It's a single burst, quite bright. And I said that you get a frequency-dependent delay. Well, the more delayed it is, the further it has come from. And you can use that to have a guess at the distance of this source. And if you do that, it turns out this source is very distant. In fact, it might be outside the galaxy, and therefore extragalactic. So it could be very far away. That kind of means it's very, very bright. If we were closer to it, it would be very, very bright. Too bright to be a pulsar. So our first thought was, oh, well, maybe we don't actually understand how much stuff is in the galaxy. Maybe it's in the galaxy, but there's just more stuff in the galaxy. It's actually nearer. In that case, it's a pulsar. But, okay, it's a pulsar. That means if we look at it, we'll see more pulses. And the pulse we saw was actually quite bright, so we should have seen some weaker pulses too. Um, we, the survey observations were about half an hour. But to be sure, I asked the people at Parks. I wrote a proposal to use the telescope to observe this thing for like 15 hours. Just stare at this point in the sky and see what we hoped were more pulses. If there's more pulses, it's a pulsar. Okay, mystery solved. If there's no pulses, okay, 
it can't be a pulsar or else it's the weirdest pulsar in the galaxy and we don't know what it is. So they let me use the telescope and I observed for loads of hours and I saw absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. And any well-behaved pulsar like the crab pulsar, if you were to move that to the edge of the galaxy and observe it for that many hours, you would see many pulses and we don't see that. That doesn't tell you what it is. That just tells you what it isn't. So that kind of line of investigation makes you think, well, it's not a pulsar. Then you, you reach a kind of stumbling block because most things that go bang in the radio that aren't from the solar system, like from the planets of the sun, they're pulsars, most that we know about. So you have to go looking for alternative explanations. What can go bang in the radio? And also, what might go bang just once and never repeat? And one of the possibilities for that, that was suggested many years ago um, by Martin Rees, was uh, evaporating black holes to introduce an exotic topic. Okay. <laughs> so black holes evaporate, do they? Well, that's the thing. They can do. Um, Stephen Hawking showed that black holes have a temperature and the temperature is actually inversely proportional to their mass. So which means that the heavy black holes are cold and the lighter black holes are warm. But for any normal-ish black hole, so say the mass of the sun, turns out the temperature is very, very cold. In fact, it's colder than the surrounding medium. So it's actually going to just grow. It's not going to evaporate. Okay. And you wouldn't detect that temperature anyway. You wouldn't detect that temperature anyways. So for it to evaporate, it has to be hotter than... The CMB, yeah. which is just below 3 Kelvin, which is very, very cold. So it has to be hotter than that or else it won't evaporate. But that means it has to be very, very light. Yeah. So not the kind of black hole that would form from a star exploding at all. So the kind of masses would be maybe 10 billion kilograms. And that sounds big, but that's not very big at all. In fact, if you want a ballpark estimate of how much mass that is, that's about the mass of all humans on planet Earth. Uh, it's very low in comparison to the mass of the Earth, much smaller. It's lower than the mass of the moon by a lot. This is tiny on the scales of stars. So that's the kind of size of black hole you need for this to happen. That's why I say it's quite exotic. So these one are the ones called mini black holes, right? Yeah, mini black holes, exactly, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So that they can't form from a, a star exploding and being the remnant of that. They have to be primordial black holes. So what does that mean? This means that in the early universe, we have some density fluctuations. Not every place in the universe has the same density. Some is a bit more dense, some is a bit less dense. And in some areas, maybe the density is high enough that that little patch of space becomes a mini black hole and if that happens then they can do this how long do they last for then don't they just evaporate straight away actually this varies a lot as uh, i said we're talking about very small black holes but first a black hole the mass of the sun if that were to evaporate it would take 10 to the power of 67 years which is one with 67 zeros after it. So that's quite long. So we don't need to worry about that. That's <laughs> much longer than the age of the universe. Yeah. But for the black holes that that I'm talking about, 
depending on the mass, they can take the age of the universe. So that they would be formed at the beginning of the universe and and coming to the end of their lives about now. And sparking. And sparking, yes. So they don't evaporate in a time scale like slowly, so they will do a bang and then Well, it depends on the mass. Yeah. So the smaller you are, the faster you evaporate. Okay. And it's actually if you're ten times smaller you actually evaporate one thousand times quicker. There's a cube factor in there. Okay. So it changes from very, very quick evaporation for the small ones to very, very slow evaporation for the big ones quite quickly. But for things that are are 100 billion kilograms, that kind of size, they would be evaporating around now. Why why do they sort of go pop at the end? Well, I say that black holes just evaporate. So they radiate some light, which is losing energy, which is losing mass. And they just do that till they have no more left. But that can't happen because at some point they get really small and they're really small and they're really dense, which means to really understand what's happening, you need to understand quantum gravity. Nobody understands these things. So at some point it's not going to go like that. And this was the idea of Martin Rees, that once they reach a certain point, they just go bang. Okay. He very famously said in his paper. He worked this out in 1977, so way before we could actually see this kind of effect. He supposed that a black hole, when it had evaporated to a certain point, that it would vomit forth its remaining energy in an instantaneous burst. <laughs> that's, a, that's a direct quote. That's a, that's as good as I can rem- remember from the top of my head, but I I don't think I would get away with saying vomit in a, paper, in a nature paper these well, days. Yeah, <laughs> if you called a sparker a puker, it wouldn't be so good. Okay, so if they exist, then how many of them are around us? Or how many other bangs can you detect? That's a really tough question. And the, the true answer is I don't know. But we, I can have an educated guess. The number of primordial black holes there are range from zero to 10 to the power of 25. So there's quite a... <laughs> There's quite a disagreement. I think most people think that they exist in enlarged numbers. I'm not quite sure why. But maybe we can ask, well, how many of these events of black holes evaporating with an associated radio burst have we seen? And I mentioned I saw one event that was unexplained. There's also another event which was observed similar to this, and that's also unexplained. And if they work due to black holes evaporating, then there's just two. And we can work out, well, how much of the sky have we looked at to see that? And we can make some estimates like that. Okay. And this is when these questions become important, because now we are building amazing telescopes like the Low Frequency Array in the Netherlands. And in some years, we're going to build a square kilometer array in the Southern Hemisphere. And these are huge array telescopes that can see all the sky all the time. So we really scale up our abilities in all ways and we go from just looking at a tiny patch of the sky at once with one little telescope to being able to see the whole sky and we're going to see loads of these events so that's why i'm worried a bit now that we have a handful of these and we don't know what they are in a few years we're going to have loads of these so it'll be nice to know what they are is there anything that's telling us it's not 
um, an evaporating black hole. Any evidence? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a loaded um, question. I knew you were going to say yes. Yeah, sorry to spoil the party on that, but uh, <laughs> so I said I have I've seen I saw this burst and I want to know what it is. Don't think it's a pulsar. So next on my list was, oh, maybe it's one of these radio bursts from black holes. And some very clever people have worked out the expected energy from such an event. So we know what kind of energy this thing would release. And we know how bright these events are that we detect on Earth. So from that, we can infer how far away it must be. And you can work out the distance from that. But also, I said earlier that the high frequencies of this radio signal arrive before the low frequencies, and the delay in that, you can use that to find a distance. Well, you can do it both ways and compare the distances. Yeah. And that's that in some way would tell you whether you're on the right path. So I did that, and they don't really match up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which was, so my brief foray into studies of... Uh, evaporating black holes might have re yielded a null result in these cases. But I think it's important to keep in mind for all these transients we're going to detect with the new telescopes. Okay, so if you've got a disagreement about distances, you could also look at it the other way and say, well, we have the DM distance, that's dispersion measure, I'm using a bit of jargon there, which means how much the frequencies have spread out in time. If you've got that DM distance, you could use that to say, well, this sparker was too bright to be what we think an evaporating black hole should be or not bright enough well if you do that the distance from the dispersion which i think we believe to some extent says that it's too bright okay so if a mini black hole was evaporating at that distance it would be much fainter we wouldn't see it so, if you think that is a evaporating mini black hole, will they have a burst also in gamma rays or X-rays or in uh, optical? Uh, yes, they will. So what happens when this black hole goes boom is that its radiation has created particles, electrons and positrons, and they expand into the surrounding material in a shell very fast, relativistically. Um, it has to be relativistic or this won't happen. And we get currents on the surface of the shell, and we get radiation, and we'll get radio and gamma ray as well, and optical. But radio will be by far the brightest uh, signal and would be the easiest way to detect this if it happens. Okay. And with these ones that has been observed, there's not a counterpart or no one could observe this? No. This, there's another interesting point about this, actually. Because these events that happened, they actually happened years ago. I said that pulsar astronomers are always surveying the sky. Well, not only do they always survey the sky, they always save everything. And they they re they search it and research it and research it. And when a new student comes along, they say, hey, you, search that data. <laughs> we, there's probably more pulsars hiding in it. You search it. And that's what I did. And I found these pulses in it. But actually, they happened years ago. And they just happened once. So we kind of have as much information as we're ever going to have on them. And this happened before Fermi was in space. Hmm. It also happened before the LIGO detectors were on. So, for instance, 
I said, these events probably aren't black hole evaporations. Well, what are they? I said, I'm just telling you what they're not. Well, maybe they're from merger events of two neutron stars merging. Maybe they're from a supernova. These are things that would happen just once and might give you a big bang. But you're saying with LIGO, that's a gravitational wave detector. Right. If, two, if, uh, if you have a binary system that merges due to the emission of gravitational waves, you have a really strong gravitational wave signal. So if they were due to something like that, you could call the LIGO guys and say, on this day, at this time, we saw a burst. Did you see any gravitational waves? And in practice, that's really what you would need to do to believe this. Because, well, for instance, even if the distances um, that I calculate from this black hole evaporation model, even if they tallied with my other way of working out the distance, that would just mean that my observations were consistent with the data, but would it make me believe it? This is when astronomers say that they need a multi-messenger confirmation. So you would need a gamma ray pulse or some kind of gravitational wave signal as extra evidence. Otherwise, you just don't have enough to prove it. All you can do is disprove things and maybe gain a bit of confidence. So if there are more sparkers, then now we've got a better chance of seeing that with several different telescopes or types of observatory, I guess. Well, I hope so. We've gotten very good in this in, in the last few years. Uh, for instance, we have, we have satellites in space that m monitor for th things called gamma ray bursts, which I think you've talked about on the Jodcast before. And when one satellite detects this gamma ray burst, the system is so automated that all other satellites can be just zoomed right over to that point within seconds or minutes. And alerts can be sent around the world saying, hey guys, a really bright gamma ray burst just happened. Everyone look over there. So that's where we're at, at X-ray and gamma ray observations. And I think it's where we need to be at for radio observations with transients detected with LOFAR and beyond. And... I think we will be there. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the interview, Evan. It was very good. Interesting. No problem. I love being in the beautiful Jodcast studio. <laughs> <laughs> and if you find any more pulses, then let us know. Will do. Thanks for that, Liz and Mark. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit everything else that we can fit anywhere else. Uh, it's the odds and ends. So does anybody have anything interesting? I do, actually. The White House, you've probably heard about this, the White House have had to uh, respond to two petitions asking the US government to acknowledge the fact that aliens have visited Earth, aliens have been in contact with the human race, and basically that the American government has known about it all along and has been uh, covering it up. 5,387 people signed asking for the government to disclose the fact they've been communicating with aliens, and over 12,000 people requested a formal acknowledgement that extraterrestrials have actually been coming to Earth and been trying to engage human beings, and the White House has known all about it. But unfortunately, the White House, well, I guess, fortunately the White House have replied, but unfortunately they are confirming that they have had no interactions with uh, anything not of this planet, and um, they're not hiding anything from the, the American public. I like the fact that it's been asked to acknowledge that yes. they have contacted us. <laughs> the White House has, uh, has no, no more information, um, but they, they're, they're as interested as the rest of us. But... On the subject of alien life, 
People have recently ranked the most livable alien worlds, and this is an article on the BBC News website. So um, people were looking for worlds kind of like Earth, as in somewhere that would have an atmosphere, somewhere that would have a magnetic field. They were looking at sort of the proximity from its parent star, so that it would have a good enough temperature to host human life. The most likely places have been uh, voted as Saturn's moon Titan and the exoplanet Gilles 581G. This was an article in Astrobiology Journal, which I think is fast becoming my favourite astronomy journal, because if you listen to the last show, uh, Stuart Harper was talking about an article that had been submitted to Astrobiology about cities on asteroids in the Kuiper Belt. So yes, that's my new favourite journal. Yes, go listen to the November Extra show if you haven't heard that. Brilliant. So another planet that might have life before is Mars. So for that, Manasa launched the Curiosity Mars rover on the 26th of November. It will get there in about eight and a half months. And it has a laboratory inside. So I'm going to quote what NASA said. They said, we are very excited about sending the world's most advanced scientific laboratory to Mars. So what it's doing is collecting dust and analyzing and it will send us the results. And so this is very interesting for understanding how Mars is different. And they have to send up friends for the existing rovers, otherwise it's just going to be like Wally <laughs> up there collecting rocks by itself. Exactly. I think that's the main problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like how they're actually getting the rover down onto the surface because most previous rovers and things that they've landed on Mars have been light enough that they kind of wrap them in bubble wrap and it falls on these air pockets and that's fine. But this, there was something about a crane lowering it, which I don't really understand. It's really cool. It's, it has different steps. So it goes through the atmosphere and then it releases the shelter that is protecting it. And then it has another like mini rockets that is bringing it down very, very slowly. And then it releases some cables. And once it's landed, then the rockets had more power. So these things separate and then it goes and flies away. And then this rover, once it's safe, then it opens up and it's, it starts looking for rocks and stuff. <laughs> As this is the December show, I thought I would bring some early Christmas cheer into this episode. There was a paper on the archive, which is going to appear in the December 2011 issue of Communicating Astronomy to the Public. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's written by a guy called Peter Barthel from the Netherlands. And he's basically looked at how the moon is depicted in Christmas cards and Christmas wrapping paper and how a lot of the times it's wrong. Okay, so everyone knows that the moon has phases. And so if you have a crescent moon on the way to the first quarter, that's a waxing moon. And you see a waxing moon in the afternoon twilight and in the evening. Whereas once it's gone through full moon and it's going on the other side, a waning crescent moon rises about three in the morning. So you only see it late at night. But they often show a waning crescent moon on Christmas cards. And this was sparked by a UNICEF Christmas card in 2010. I quote, it showed children decorating an outdoor Christmas tree. Judging from the moon phase, the scene takes place at 4am or 5am in the morning, which is not impossible, but unlikely. (laughs) So he's gone through and actually looked at gift wrap and Christmas cards and children's books in the Netherlands, because that's where Sinterklaas, who is basically the entity that Santa came from, that's where he originated. And then in the US, where obviously Santa Claus is a big thing. And he's found that the moon is wrong in 40% of Dutch books and 65% of Dutch gift wrap. 
but the US fares better, but that's probably because they show the full moon instead of a crescent one. So they'll have kids decorating Christmas trees at midnight. Yeah. Just, I guess, fine if they're like teats or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's silly, but it's been picked up by the Guardian website and it does make you think, you know, the phase of the moon is something that everyone should be able to understand and it's a bit of a silly mistake to make. But at the same time, it's also very pedantic and I don't think many people care. True. <laughs> very true. <laughs> and I have some good news if you uh, have enjoyed this year's Stargazing Live in January. It apparently is coming back Yay. at Jolo Bank, uh, the Jolo Bank Center website and Twitter have been saying Hinting. so. Saying so. So yeah. I believe Twitter. Maybe yeah. we shouldn't. Twitter shouldn't lie. <laughs> and if you're thinking of getting binoculars or a telescope for Christmas, don't forget that Ian Morrison has written web pages with advice for buying both of those on the Georgia Bank Center for Astrophysics website. Ian Morrison does. Pretty cool things. He does. He does, including telling you what you can see in the northern sky this month. Well, December. The great thing, of course, is that the nights are long. Great for astronomers. If we go out just after sunset, as it gets dark, we'll still be able to see Cygnus and Lyra with their bright stars Deneb and Vega high in the northwest, a lovely region of the sky. The Milky Way arcs overhead from Cygnus through Cassiopeia, over through Capella in Auriga, and then down towards Gemini. Looking round towards the south, not quite so many bright stars, but you should see the square of Pegasus, as the evening draws on perhaps towards the southwest. I'll come back to that in one of the highlights, because it gives you a way of finding the, the galaxy M31 or Andromeda. Coming over from Pegasus, we have Taurus. It's a lovely constellation. And then that's followed by Orion, two of my favorite constellations, the winter constellations. And almost everybody knows the shape of Orion the Hunter. I do love the Pleiades, little cluster of stars that you see. Pictures may show some blue nebulosity, light scattered by dust that the stars are passing through. But it's very hard to see visually. In fact, it may well be impossible. And jolly hard to photograph as well as I've tried. If you look with a small telescope, there's a lovely region in the centre. Two of the brightest stars. One of them has a lovely triplet of stars, a little triangle right beside it. And between that and the next one, Maya, I think it is, there's a double star system, one of which is very red. So it's worth looking at with a telescope. Orion the Hunter, of course, is rising later in the evening. Beneath the belt of Orion, the three stars that make a very nice straight line, lies the sword. And in that is M42, the great nebula in Orion. It's a lovely little glow, perhaps, in binoculars, but a telescope will show you an arc of brightness on a dark, moonlit night, at the heart of which is a group of stars called the trapezium. You normally see four, but under perfect conditions, you can actually see another two. Down to the lower left, following the three stars of the belt downwards, you come to Sirius. That won't be rising till rather later, but the brightest star, in the sky. And finally up to the left of Orion and over to the left of Taurus is Gemini, the heavenly twins, with their bright stars Castor and Pollux. If you stay up much later, you'll actually see Leo the Lion rising, but that's perhaps getting a bit towards dawn. So a lot to see in the sky. Well, what about the planets? It's a very good month for planets, actually. I think we can see all of the brighter ones. Jupiter dominates the night sky 
It rises around sunset. It's fairly high up in the southeast by about eight o'clock, and it reaches an elevation of about fifty degrees. Happily, Jupiter is rising up the ecliptic, so we see it higher in the sky. And that means that the atmosphere is less of a problem in trying to see some of the markings on the surface. I've been observing it quite a lot recently. The north equatorial belt has got some very dark, prominent markings. They're called barges, and tucked into the south equatorial belt, of course, is the great red spot. I'll come back to that later on. What about Saturn? Well, it passed behind the sun on the 18th of October. We call that superior conjunction, and can now be seen in the pre-dawn sky. As December begins, it will lie in the southeast at an elevation of about 20 degrees when dawn breaks, just a few degrees away from the first magnitude star Spica. But of course, by month's end, it'll be visible some 27 degrees above the horizon, just east of south, as dawn breaks. Now, in contrast to Jupiter, sadly Saturn is now heading for the more southerly parts of the ecliptic, so will not be rising all that high over the next few months. That's a pity. But on the other hand, the rings are now opening out. You may remember that a while ago they were actually edge on; we could barely see them. They've now opened out to about thirteen and a half degrees to the line of sight. So again, a small telescope should be able to show you Cassini's division that lies between two of the belts. Has a 16.5 arc second disk. The overall size, including its ring system, is comparable with Jupiter's. You can occasionally see some markings on the surface, some bands, but they are fainter than on Jupiter. Or what about Mercury? It passes in front of the sun on December the fourth, so you ain't got much chance of seeing it until late in the month when it reappears before dawn in the southeastern sky. It's at magnitude minus 0.4, which is quite bright, and it'll be well seen on the 23rd when it lies above a thin crescent moon and further down to the right, the star Antares. Well, Mars. It is a good month for planets, isn't it? Mars, in fact, of course, is coming up to its Apparition every two or so years.、Uh, the really good part will be、uh, in the new year, but it's getting bigger. It's actually got to about nine arc seconds, or will have done so by the end of December, and that's when you can begin to see some real details on the surface, such as the Certis Major, a V shape, the most prominent marking on Mars, and also hopefully the North Polar Cap as well. Through a telescope, it looks as though it has a salmon pink colour. It's not really red. Filters sometimes help you see it better, and it brightens from plus 0.7 to plus 0.2 during the month. So it is going to become more prominent, but you do have to wait a while, perhaps after midnight, to begin to see it well. And finally, Venus. Well, that's been around in the evening sky for a while, but it's actually. Low down above the horizon, because the ecliptic along which the planets lie is at a very shallow angle to the horizon at this time of year. So even though it's gradually increasing its angular separation from the sun, so in principle seen more easily for longer after sunset, it doesn't really reach a very high elevation. But in fact, by month's end, it will in fact be 18 degrees above the horizon, just south of where the sun has set. So. 
you have a chance to see it. The angular size is around 13 arc seconds. Um, that's actually increasing. But interestingly, as it does so, the phase, which is the percentage illuminated, drops from 89 to 83%, as it's actually coming further round from the back of the Sun. And the interesting effect with Venus is that the change in size, which increases as it gets nearer, and the reducing phase angle, so less is illuminated, as we see, means that the brightness stays pretty constant, and all this month is at minus 3.9. So it's actually pretty bright, but low down, you might need binoculars. So there we go. Finally, what about some highlights? Quite a few of them, nothing particularly spectacular, I'm afraid, but you never know. Let's start with December the 10th, from about 3 o'clock onwards. Now, it's still light then, but basically, this is when we will have a partial eclipse of the moon. Obviously, that follows, in fact, a total eclipse, but we're not in the right place to see it. And really, you'll only see a sort of a bite, perhaps taken out of one part of the moon. The further north and east you go, the better your chance of seeing it. The moon rises at 1524 in Aberdeen, 1549 in Manchester, where I am, 1551 in London, but if you live down in a nice place called Exeter, it's 1609. The Earth's shadow finally clears the moon's surface at 1618, so if you're in Exeter, you haven't got much chance of seeing anything. To be honest, although I went up to the northern tip of Scotland, to try and observe an annual eclipse of the sun and woke up in thick fog, I ain't going to be going up to the northern tip of Scotland to see this. But you never know, it might be worth a look. Every December, we have one of the year's best meteor showers, the Geminids. And the early mornings of December the 14th and 15th give us the best chance of seeing it. Sadly, however, this year the full moon is on the 10th. And in fact, on the 14th and 15th, it's going to be very close to the radiant. Now, it could be worse because you don't actually look at the radiant sea meteors. You want to look at about 45 degrees away. So I would, if it's clear, look upwards and try and keep the moon's glare out of your eyes. Then you hopefully will see some of the brighter trails. The rather slow-moving meteors, in fact, come from an asteroid, 3200 Phaeton, which is unusual because most meteor showers are linked with comets. On December the 21st, everything else is at the very end of the month. One hour before dawn, a nice view of Saturn's spica and a thin, waning crescent moon. You might even just spot Mercury if you have a very low eastern horizon. On December the 23rd, in the morning, we should be able to see some meteors from the Ursid meteor shower. And, of course, the moon's not going to be around then. There aren't that many, perhaps 10 or 15 per hour, but sometimes you have a bit of a better shower, so it's worth having a look. The Ursids imply the radiant is in the region of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor in particular, and very close to the star Kokab. And, again, with all of these, on the Night Sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just put Night Sky into Google, I've given little charts to show you where and when to look. On December the 23rd, if you've been up all night, you could stay up and perhaps see, about an hour before dawn, Mercury and a very thin crescent moon. Finally, in the evening on the 27th, you can see Venus and a thin crescent moon. But I've left one other thing till last. This is probably one of the best months to observe the galaxy M31 Andromeda. 
It's the nearest large galaxy to us, comparable in size to our own, perhaps somewhat bigger, although that's being argued about at the present time. People are actually increasing the mass and size of our own Milky Way galaxy as we speak. It obviously isn't getting any bigger or more massive, but our measurements may be changing. I mentioned the square of Pegasus. If you start at the top left-hand star, which is called Alpha Andromedae, or Alpha Rats, move round and up to the right a bit, two bright stars, then turn sharp right to one fairly bright star, another one a bit beyond it, about the same distance, you should see a little fuzzy glow. And that's the central core of the galaxy. It's actually pretty large in the sky, three degrees or more across, and binoculars under a very dark sky probably are the best way of observing it, or a short focal length refractor, as I was doing last Saturday night from Shrewsbury. And I, in fact, imaged it with um, a new CCD camera that I've just bought, and in the little night sky page I've added that. Not particularly brilliant image, but it does show roughly speaking, what Andromeda looks like, along with its two little daughter galaxies, M32, above a little round dwarf elliptical, further south, below it is M101, which is a more elongated elliptical. You can also find it by following the V-shape of the top three stars of Cassiopeia. Just follow that V downwards and you'll come to it as well. So sweep down gently with binoculars and obviously do it around the time of new moon. When the moon is up there, its glare will basically wash out pretty much anything you can see. And again, on the website, I've also said how you might then be able to find M33, which is the third largest galaxy in our local group of galaxies. So, best of luck. It's a lovely month to observe. I hope it goes well for you. Thanks for that, Ian. And now John Phil tells us what you can see in the southern sky this month. Kia ora. And welcome to the December Jodcast, coming to you from the Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Due north in our evening sky, we have the constellations of Taurus, along with Orion and its two hunting dogs, Canis Major and Canis Minor. We had a look at Canis Major in last month's Jodcast, and Orion and Taurus last year. So for this Jodcast, we will turn away from the north and look to some of the fainter constellations clustered around the South Celestial Pole. Running in a line from Achenar down to the southeast, ending between the diamond and false crosses are the constellations of Hydrus, the small water snake, Mensa, the table mountain, and Bolans, the flying fish. We start our Star Trek at the star Achenar, the ninth brightest star in our night sky. This star is the brightest in the long and winding constellation of Eridanus, the river, that stretches from Achenar and ends nearby to Rigel, the foot of the Rhine. Achenar is a blue giant star, estimated to be 140 light years away and 3,000 times brighter than our Sun. Studies reveal that this star rotates so quickly that it is 56% fatter around the equator than through the poles. To the lower southeast, we find the magnitude 2.9 star Alpha Hydrus marking the head of the water snake. The body of the water snake winds its way between the two Magellanic clouds. The only other bright stars in this constellation are Beta at magnitude 2.8 and Gamma at magnitude 3.2. These three stars form a triangle in the sky with a line from Alpha to Beta crossing through the constellation of Tucana and the small Magellanic Cloud. Pi Hydrus is a lovely optical double of a red and orange star, shining at 5.5. Continuing along our imaginary line, we enter the constellation of Mensa. None of the stars in this constellation are over magnitude 5, making it the faintest of all constellations. Alpha Mensa shines at magnitude 5.09, 
It is a main sequence dwarf star, only slightly smaller and cooler than our Sun. It is a binary star with a red dwarf orbiting around the main star at a distance of 30 astronomical units. Hunts for planets orbiting the star have so far been unsuccessful. Perhaps the most interesting star in Mensa is Pi Mensa. It shines at magnitude 5.6 and is about 10% more massive than our Sun and 4 times brighter. In 2001, a planet with the estimated mass of 10 times that of Jupiter was discovered orbiting the star. Unfortunately, it is a highly eccentric orbit that crosses the habitable zone around the star, and that would mean that no Earth-like planets could survive in this region. The most interesting feature of Mensa is that part of the large Magellanic cloud enters this constellation. This perhaps represents the clouds that form on the famous Table Mountain itself. One of our neighbouring galaxies, the LMC, is the most massive satellite galaxy of our Milky Way. This galaxy is visible as a hazy cloud in our southern sky. This object is a great target for binoculars and small telescopes with many faint star clusters and nebulae to discover. Moving on from the mountain, we come to Volan supplying fish. The stars that form this constellation are marginally brighter than those in Mensa. Alpha Volantis is a magnitude 4 yellow star. It sits at the end of our line and is near to the naked eye globular cluster NGC 2808 in Carina. Beta and Gamma run back along our line towards the large Magellanic cloud. Beta is an orange giant shining at magnitude 3.8. Gamma is a pretty double in a field of scattered stars shining at magnitude 3.8 and 5.7 and make a fine sight in small telescopes. Epsilon is a magnitude 4.4 blue star with a magnitude 8 companion that is visible in small telescopes. They also sit in a field sprinkled with stars. The primary star also has a companion that it is impossible to see in a telescope. Our journey has led us through to the rich star fields of Trina along the Milky Way. Nearby we find Beta Canopus, Mea Placidus, the name meaning placid waters. This star marks the top of the asterism known as the Diamond Cross. At the other end of the Diamond Cross is the open cluster IC2602, also known as the Southern Pleiades. This cluster of over 30 stars group around the magnitude 2.8 star Theta Carina. Carrying on this line through the Diamond Cross, we come to another open cluster covering an area twice the size of the full moon. Its official designation, NGC 3532, is rather boring, and the cluster has been given the more evocative name of the Wishing Well Cluster, said to have come from its telescopic resemblance to coins shining in the bottom of the proverbial Wishing Well. In reality, this is a cluster of over 150 stars, 1,300 light years away from our solar system. Whilst in the area, why not check out the Carina Nebula and the orange star in the nebula known as Eta Carina. Moving along the southern Milky Way, we come to the only true cross in the sky, the Southern Cross. This well-known southern constellation, the smallest of the 88 official constellations, appears on many flags around the southern hemisphere. Consisting of three bright stars and two fainter stars, this constellation can be easily seen from most suburban skies. Running along one side of the crux is the Colsac Nebula a dark cloud of dust and gas that is blocking out the light of the more distant stars that are further beyond. It is inside these clouds of dust and gas that we see along the Milky Way that gravity pulls this material together to form new stars and solar systems. And in our own solar system we have the planet Venus low down in the western sky after sunset. Through a telescope it will reveal a gibbous phase, similar to that of an almost full moon. Jupiter is high up in our northern sky and small telescopes will reveal the planet's disk and larger moons. On the morning of December the 11th, there is a total lunar eclipse visible throughout New Zealand and Australia. The moon will be completely within the Earth's shadow at 3.06, and 
and by 358 it will begin to move out of the Earth's shadow. These times are for New Zealand Daylight Savings Time. So from the team here at Carter Observatory, we wish you a safe and enjoyable solstice, and we look forward to another exciting year of stargazing. Thanks, John. Now we have uh, this part of the show about the feedback, and I think we got quite a lot this month. I've decided that Jodcast postcards are like buses, um, because we waited for ages, and then six turned up in less than two weeks. It might be because you've been complaining that we don't receive any for maybe. maybe a month. So we've got some from regular Jodcast post senders and some from other people. So thank you, David Alt, former Jodcaster, for your Forks Telescope postcard showing M65. Thanks to Bill for sending us a London postcard saying Job Pub London was fun. Bit weird because did you send that while you were with us? I just don't know. <laughs> and Susan Kelly has sent us one from Park saying how about a Sydney Job Pub? So yeah, I'm going to be in Sydney in January, I think. And I could do a Job Pub in, in Sydney. <laughs> yes, definitely. So while I was going to say if you pay for us to come, then yes, actually Liz might be able to do one. Yeah. Also, a postcard from Richard, who was on holiday in Croatia. He said that there were clear skies, but quite a lot of light pollution. But Croatia is beautiful. I can't pronounce where that is from. Trogir. Roger and Finn, who live in Ireland, came all the way over just to visit Jodrell Bank and have sent us a homemade postcard, I guess showing Finn the sun at Jodrell Bank, with thumbs up. That's really cool. Thank you. And finally, Peter Carr has sent us one from the Bushan Caves in Australia. And he says, P.S. I miss the intros. So that's very good timing because we have an intro. Just for you. Just for you. <laughs> it's like we knew you were sending us that. We also got a pretty funny email from uh, Robin Irvine uh, saying, I quote, It struck me that the very large array should be renamed the Hip Hip Array. <laughs> Love that. I would have entered the competition, but my courage deserted me as I can't be certain if the American Astronomical Society does puns. I wish they would. What are you writing? Oh, I'm writing like a big proposal for the hip hip array. So in Twitter, we have from Red Tweet Down that for whatever reason, my Android Listen podcast hadn't notified me for the past few episodes until November. So we were wondering if anyone, anyone else having that problem, then get in touch with us. And on Flickr, Joseph Rearcom has added loads of faces to the Flickr group. So go and check that out. And the Jod Pub photos are up there as well. And James Billings has put a picture of M31. That's a really pretty picture. I picked that out. It's an awesome one. I have to go check that out. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. As always, the address is on the website. And that is my subtle hint to everyone to send us Christmas cards or generic holiday greetings. Or chocolates. <laughs> or Liz wants chocolates. <laughs> don't actually send chocolates. So that's the end of this show. Uh, we would like to thank Dr. Sonia Anton and Dr. Evan Keen for the interviews. The Panto starred Libby Jones as the narrator, Jen Gupta as Jen Durella, Stuart Lowe as Baron Cardiff, Menly Jandra as the stepmother, Adam Avison and Mark Perver as the amazing ugly sisters, Megan Argo as the fairy jodmother, Christina Smith and Leo Huckvale as the random two people, and, of course, David Alt as Prince Professional Respect. The pantomime was scripted and edited by David Alt.
The editors were Mark Perver, Megan Argo, Claire Brotherton, Liz Guzman, and Stuart Harper. And the producer was Jen Gupta. Until next time. Jadon. In an attempt to find Genderella, the prince looked for the person who owned the glasses. Nope, it's not me. I have 2020 vision. How about you? Oh, no, dear. We're just bit parts. And me with my credentials. I went to Guildford, you know. Well, my mother did. The prince came to the department of Baron Cardiff and his wife and tried there. I can't quite get them on. Get them here, mother. They're mine. Oh, struggling. Really? No, they're mine. See? They fit easily. Gosh. Oh, hmm. Now, can you walk in a straight line? Of course. My um, lady. Um, now it depends on your definition of straight and walk. Yes. Oh, dear. Well, are there any other girls in this department? Well, there's Genderella, but she couldn't have been at the party. Bring her here. Genderella! Genderella, come here. What is it? Oh, Prince Professional Respect. Hello there. Can you try on these glasses, please? I'd love to. They fit. You were the witty, graceful and elegant person at my party. Impossible. She's not even a postdoc. You don't want to be a postdoc, do you? Well, it would be quite nice. Rubbish. Being a postdoc is a thankless job, and you want excitement, adventure and really wild things. If you want to see the universe, you need to come with me. But she can't. She's cleaning our data. And she's meant to be running the podcast. Oh, you'll survive. Come on, Genderella. We can leave. Just like that. Of course. How else do I finish these pantos? This way. Typical. It's the same every year. No originality. He does write the script. He ends these stories all the same way. Imagine what would happen if we let him back to do intros next year. It doesn't bear thinking about. If you can't think how to end a story, use a TARDIS sound effect.